So we're going to jump in today with Job uh, just because it's an unusual day, isn't it? It's a really, really strange day to see so few people here, but we're glad that those of you who are watching, uh, watching online are staying home and staying safe. I know the roads are not the greatest. I know because I drove on them myself. Um, love Steve talking to me earlier. He said, I'm from New York. I was going to be here anyway. So um, love that. So totally, totally like him. Hope you guys have been enjoying our, our study in Job uh, as we've really hit on things. The, the thing about Job that really is amazing are the deep themes of the Christian walk that really have been established as we've been walking in this. And we're going to be doing that again today uh, from a sermon that I've titled Closing Arguments. Uh, The reason I titled it Closing Arguments is because it begins to sound like as, as we've been going through Job through these 31 chapters that we've read so far, it begins to sound a little bit more like, um, I don't know, one of those internet arguments you get into. Um, it starts out fine, maybe with one of your friends, and, and then it ends in this train wreck. How many of you have ever had one of those train wreck conversations online before? Raise your hand. I have. How many of you have had multiple train wreck conversations online? Okay, because that's kind of what this is turning into. Job's friends come, and when they come, they they see his they see their friend who has lost all of his kids, have lost most of his servants, has have lost all of his uh, cattle and and property of the time, and now he's lost his health as well as he's scraping these boils and they come and they're sitting there mourning for him when they see the the terrible things that are going through him uh during going through his life at that moment and they mourn for him for seven days then job opens his mouth and he talks and then his friends hearing what job has said just couldn't let it go and so what you see is this, this idea going back and forth between this. And it starts out pretty, you know, broad brush strokes. Hey, God, you know, God punishes those who are wicked. And we know that he punishes the sinful. So if you've got sin in your life, you need to do that. But as it goes along, it gets more and more pronounced and more and more personal. As a matter of fact, in last week's reading, because this week is all Job talking. So in last week's reading, Mark talked about some of Job's uh, insights, which was awesome. But there was other reading. And I want to give a, a little clip because part of what Job is responding to in this last section has to do with some of the charges that have been laid at his feet. This has become more of a courtroom drama, you know, with him and his friends. So if you'll turn with me to Job chapter 22... Job chapter 22, we're looking at Eliphaz. And Eliphaz, in this small section of scripture uh, from verses 4 to 11, starts making things much more personal than was at the very beginning. As you've you've read with Job, we're seeing an increase in temperature concerning the accusations against Job. At first, it was something nebulous saying, we don't know what happened, but we figured something must have gone wrong because we know that just God is just. And if you're being punished, there must be something that you've done wrong. Well, now Eliphaz, starting in verse four, listen to what he says to Job. Is it for your piety that he rebukes you, talking about God, and brings charges against you? Is it not your wicked? It's not your wickedness great. Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. 
You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary. You withheld food from the hungry. And though you were a powerful man owning land and an honored man living on it, you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see and why a flood of water covers you. Oh my goodness. Eliphaz just went full social justice warrior on him. That's literally what he just did, right? Because that's what we see. We see from the beginning, something is wrong, something is wrong, something is wrong. And now Eliphaz are bringing these unrighteous charges before Job. And he's saying, you're all of these bad things. You are somebody who turns widows away. You're somebody who doesn't feed the poor. You strip people down for no reason. You don't give them security. All of these things became very, very personal in nature. I think that there is something to be said concerning these charges that are laid at the feet of of Job. There's a saying that's in my household that we talk about all the time. It's it's listening to the right voices. Because the honest to goodness truth is Job is hearing something here that we know as as we've already kind of peeked at the end and many of us who've read Job before know know how he's going to be, you know, uh, vindicated by God concerning his position. So we know that Eliphaz is not speaking what is right. And yet you and I are bombarded with those same things in our culture today, aren't we? You and I are bombarded with voices that tell us that if we are a certain way, have certain things, have a certain worldview, that we are not right. These same type of very personal charges too, being thrown out. And you and I have to learn to be able to listen to the right voices or voices like this will incapacitate us. And we can look to Job to see how he handles this situation. So I just want to briefly overview as as Job begins to make his defense in Job 26. He spends the first two chapters talking about God's power, which he's, he's covered before and I talked about in a previous sermon before. And in the midst of chapter 27, he said, look, I'm still not going to do evil, though all these bad things have happened to me, though God's power is against me right now, I'm still going to serve him. He gets to chapter 28 and he begins to speak of God's wisdom and how awesome his wisdom is and how unending his wisdom is. And he gets to chapter 29 and Job begins to reminisce for when he was well respected among the people and how he did and talks about many of the honorable things that he did as a refutation to his three friends this is what i did in the town square and people praised me for it and i helped the widow and i helped the poor and i helped the stranger and i did all of these things and people regarded me because i was a father to the fatherless chapter 30 is just a huge rebuke to his friends His friends who have come only to pile on on his misery. Here I am a broken man and you are worthless counselors. 
I'm paraphrasing tremendously. I pray you guys all read this week. But basically it's like, you guys are terrible. I would even use your fathers as my servants. That's, that's how terrible you are. That's awful. And here you're kicking a man when he's down. When God's hand is definitely against me. Which leads us to Job 31, which is what we're going to dive into today. Because the tone in Job changes. I believe those first six chapters, we see a refutation, if you will, of his friends. He gives honor and glory to God to show that he understands who God is, how powerful he is, how wise he is. He shares about his life. He's not going to buy into the lies that his friends are trying to throw at his feet saying, you're this evil, terrible person. And then he turns around and tells the truth on them and says, you are terrible by pushing a man when he's down, when God has afflicted him. In 31, we see a shift because I think Job is no longer talking to his friends. I think he's making his final case to God. I think we're seeing him saying, I am going to give my final closing statement of my righteousness before God and before the jury. We get to hear the jury next week in Elihu. And then we get to hear about God's response the week after that as we close out Job. But we can learn something concerning Job and what a righteous man is because this is really his appeal. His appeal is to his righteousness. I am a righteous man. Here is what I have done to guard myself, to make sure that I honor God in all things. Here is my appeal to God and in Job's eyes to show that what I am a victim of is of unjust suffering. But you and I are going to look at it today of what it means to be a righteous man. Because I think in his closing arguments, that's what we get. So, Job 31, verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. For what is man's lot from God above, his heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I've walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in the honest scales and he will know that I'm blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart had been led by my eyes or my, if my hands had been defiled, then may others eat what I've sown and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain. And may other men sleep with her, for that would have been shameful, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. So the first thing that Job goes to is this idea that he has been faithful, not lusting after other women, and being faithful only to his own wife. And he says, look, if I, if I had sought after those things... This would have been a grievous and a great sin against God. You know, one of the things I think that you and I struggle with in today's day and age is that of lustfulness. It's everywhere, right? We are, uh, sexual revolution just opened the floodgates to what we're dealing with now. 
And the things that we're dealing with are so much more readily and easily accessible than it ever was before. That the idea that you and I struggle with these same types of things with the lustfulness of our thoughts when finding something abhorrent to God's eyes is just a click away. Sometimes you don't even have to be searching for it, right? I'm sure every one of us have typed in something wrong or scrolled on something or clicked on something it didn't mean to and boom, whoa! Man, it's hard to get away from it. It used to be you have to search that stuff out. Now it's just right there, knocking at your door. And a righteous man doesn't seek after those things. And, and like I said, it's harder now, I think, to be a righteous man in this area. Every era deals with different sins. In our era right now, we're dealing with this one. This is nothing new. This goes all the way back, I believe, to Adam and Eve. I think the whole idea that the first thing that Adam and Eve noticed that they were naked tells you that the first thing that was, that was perverted, the first thing that was distorted from their perception was their rightful view of one another before God. We've never lost that from the very beginning. Read about Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 18, right? We can see that All of these things have been there from the very beginning. And Job is probably, as Mark mentioned, first book that was written down from the Bible. And here, the irony is, when Job is talking about his righteousness, his standard is eerily similar to that of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. And see if you can just hear the echo of the words of Job. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Man, it seems like Jesus' standard and Job's standard are pretty much the same, aren't they? And Job's defense before God is saying, look, I didn't not only not commit adultery, I made a covenant not to lust after a girl. This is part of what it means to be a righteous man. Because to do so would be a great sin before God. But he doesn't just start with lustfulness. He doesn't stop with lustfulness. Excuse me. We go to Job. Go back to Job real quick. Let's continue on in verse 13. If I've denied justice to my men servants and maid servants when they had grievance against me. What will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as I would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. If I had seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment, and his heart did not bless me, For warming him with the fleece of my sheep. If I had raised my hand against the fatherless. Knowing that I had influence in court. 
Then let my arm fall from the shoulder and let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God. And for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Skipping down to 29. If I rejoice at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him. I have not allowed my mouth to sin by evoking a curse against his life. If the men of my household have never said who has not had his fill of Job's meat. But no stranger had to spend the night in the street. For my door was always open to the traveler. So the first thing that he says is he says I wasn't lustful. I didn't go after other women. I I stayed faithful to my wife. And made a covenant with my eyes. The second part is that socially, the people who were around me, I tried to do the things that God wanted me to do. I tried to help the poor. I tried to help the stranger. I tried to help the fatherless. I wanted to be an advocate. I wanted to speak up. I wanted to treat my men servants and my maid servants as if they were made in the same image of the God who formed us both in the wombs of our mothers. Everything that I did here, I did because I cared about what God wanted me to do. My motivation came from the fact that I wanted to honor God with all that I am. Look at verse 23 again. For I dreaded destruction from God and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. See, my motivation or Job's motivation, a righteous person's motivation for doing the right things is because he's conscious of God. Because he does it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Not because it makes him look good or gives him a promotion or somebody else is going to notice. Job isn't talking about any of those things right now. He's saying, I did all of these things, every one of them, whether it was a traveler or a stranger or the naked, whoever it was, whoever I helped, I helped because I loved God and I knew that's what he wanted me to do for fear, for respect from the God of whom I serve. See, that should be your and my motivation too. The irony is, you know, the words we're hearing from Job, we see, we hear echoed in Jesus' words all over the place. Matthew chapter 25, we look at the last judgments. Real interesting passage of scripture. Matthew 25, we know this passage. Many of you know this passage very well. Starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom is prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to, and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, 
you did for me. You guys hear the same thing right there? And, and there's a difference. Job is making his case before God saying, I did all of these things because of you. The sheep who are on Jesus' right hand side, right hand side, said, when did we do this? You know why? Because they didn't understand that they were serving Jesus by serving others in his name. They were cognizant of Christ. They were serving Christ. They didn't realize they were serving Jesus directly. That's why he says, Lord, when did we do this? When you've done this to one of the least brothers of mine, you have also done it for me. Motivation is that we seek first his kingdom so that we might do his will, not for any accolades, not for any other reason that we fear him, we love him, we want to honor him with our lives. This is the call of a righteous man. This is what Job is saying. This is what I've done. These are the things that I've done. And they stand in stark contrast because, again, he's going to be vindicated before God. This is how he has actually acted. But it's not what he's accused of by his friends. And we need to learn to listen to the right voice. Job is listening to the right voice. Right now it's hard to listen to that right voice, right? Because now they're just attacking him. And you and I, in the midst of being attacked, we don't like it. How many of you like being attacked? Not really fond of it myself either. It's not fun being called something that you're not. It's not fun being accused of something you haven't done. We were never necessarily promised anything else. We've talked about that as we've been going through Job. There's no promise for us as believers. Persecution is going to come. People are going to call us names. People are going to say things about us that are not true. And we have to, the only way we're going to be able to stand is if we're learning to listen to the right, right voice. If God's voice means more to us than the world's voice around us, we'll be easy to throw it off or easier to throw it off. We'll be able to stand up under the weight of it, right? Because we'll know it's not true. This is where Job is at. He's defending his own honor right now because he's like, I'm being attacked this way, but that's not the truth. It's not the truth. I know what I've done. These are the things that I've done. The very things that you accuse me of doing the exact opposite of. His friends have kind of become his enemies, wouldn't you say? During this course of time. And yet, ironically, Job talks about his enemies too in this passage. Verses 29 through 32 when he says, you know, I didn't wish ill for my enemies. I didn't, I didn't have a curse for them. And again, we hear the echo of the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. At the end of the chapter, verse 43, it says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous if you love those who love you what reward will you get are not even tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your brothers what are you doing more than others do not even pagans do that be perfect therefore 
as your heavenly father is perfect. So what we see in Job is saying, look, even those who are my enemies, I didn't wish ill on them. I think one of the hardest things about being a righteous person in today's time is this idea of being good to your enemy. If you listen to the rhetoric, if you are reading any articles right now, if anybody stands against your viewpoint, the idea is to absolutely destroy them. Social media has made us all kind of people who are looking for vengeance. We read all the news stories, read the comment section, watch the articles blow up, the vitriol of other people that are there. We talked last time I spoke about the whole idea of talking about our government and talking about the people who are in charge, how easy it is for us to wish ruin upon them. And the culture we're living in would cheer us on. They agreed with our viewpoint, no matter which side of the point of view you were on. But Jesus wouldn't. Jesus says the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, Job, being a righteous man, says, I didn't do that to my enemies. My enemies, I didn't curse them. If they needed help, I helped them. about the people in your workplace that you would consider an enemy at least an enemy according to the gospel of Jesus Christ would you still do good for them or are you just hoping for their that they'll get what they deserve wanting their downfall See, God is so good that even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Even though we weren't reconciled to him, he still sent him as a sacrifice for us that our eyes might be opened to come to him. Do we not want that for a lost and dying world, some of which consider themselves and maybe we consider as well our enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who mistreat you. Bless and not curse. Not easy. Nobody said it was easy. Job isn't going through an easy time right now. Remember, think about what Job's going through. He's lost his kids. He's lost his health. He's lost his livestock. He has three friends who are now berating him in their comfort for him. Calling him all of these types of names. Be easy to try and respond in kind. He hasn't done it. He may have called them out. But he hasn't done anything to them. He hasn't wished evil upon them. Because that's how Job treats his enemies. Third thing we can learn from. Job. First is the lustfulness of the eyes. He's not a righteous man. Second thing is that the things that we do for God, the things that, that we do, we do for God, whatever they are. The third thing that we can learn, can find starting in verse 24. Let's see if I can find verse 24. Chapter 31. If I put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, if fortune, the fortune of my hands had gained, if I had regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in its splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage 
And these also would be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. So next thing that Job is talking about a righteous man. A righteous man serves God and God alone. That's it. And he says, look, whether I had wealth, I didn't trust in my wealth. It wasn't a matter of wealth being that. What I find interesting is Job doesn't really attack idols of that time. There's no idols. All of his idols are kind of our idols, right? They're not something you bow down to, but there's something you store in your heart is more precious than God. Wealth and status, the sun and the moon, if I'd played homage to it. If I had done something to show that that it was really up to fate or to chance or to astrology or whatever other thing that we put our hope into rather than God himself. He said this would be a grievous sin against God. My hope is in God and God alone. That's it. It's part of the reason why I don't fill out these stupid questionnaire things on online. How many of you ever do that? Some of you do. I see some of those things. I did this and I found out I'm this. You know what? I am kind of who, who God says I am. I'm not really worried about anybody else's what they think. Right? But we do. We, we put value on a lot of different things in our lives. A righteous man only really cares, only really should care about God. That's it. Seriously. I'm not lying. It's that simple. It's that simple and yet it's that hard. How many of you want to be financially stable? I do. How many of you want a good career? I do. How many of you want to marry a smoking wife like I did? I do. Or a husband. So. And yet all of those things can become idols. Your spouse can become an idol. Your boyfriend or a girlfriend can become an idol. I can't tell you how many people I've seen fall away from Christ because they'd rather live with their boyfriend or girlfriend than get married and make things right before God. Because that other person has become an idol. I can't tell you how many children have become idols to their parent, to, for their parents. Who say they have to have everything. They have, we, we have to let little Joey have everything. But it's not really about Joey having everything. Just for, so you're, no, nobody here as far as I know is, we have a Joe, but no Joey. So we're not talking about anybody. But you guys get the idea. All of these things, status, I, I need that promotion. If I, if I don't have this job or if I don't have this money or if I, don't ha- if I haven't saved up $150,000 by the time I'm blank years old. We make all of these things of status above that of God when we should be regarding God above everything else. And if we get it, fine. Job is saying, that was never me. Whether I had wealth or I didn't have wealth, it didn't affect me. My wealth did not hinder me. But I can honestly tell you, wealth hinders a lot of us today. We live in a very wealthy society. And our wealth hinders us in our relationship with God as we put more emphasis on that wealth or how we achieve that wealth or how somebody else in our family can get that wealth rather than being rich toward the things of God. And a righteous man would call that for what it is. It's idolatry. Because that's what Job does. It wasn't me. 
I didn't do it. I stayed holy, 100% focused on God. Even though all of this has happened to me. I think it's a huge challenge for us in our age. I really do. Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. According to what it says. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Some wandering after it have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He's talking about idolatry. That's what he's talking about in that passage. That's what Job is talking about here. A righteous man doesn't do those things. Which leads us to the fourth one. Because guess what? Even a righteous man messes up. One thing you won't see Job talking about is that he's sinless. He says he's blameless, not sinless. Listen to what it says in verse 33. If I have concealed my sin as men do, and that could be translated or as Adam did, by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and all of its furrows are wet with tears... If I've devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. And he begins this last section in verse 33. If I had concealed my sin as men do by hiding my guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd. And so dreaded the contempt of clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. I think one of the most terrible things that we deal with that prevents our generation from being righteous is that we do not confess our sin. Look online. We proclaim other people's sin. We're great at doing that. We're good at making ourselves look good at everybody else's expense. Job isn't saying he's not sinless. He's never claimed that. He said, look, if I had concealed my sin, what does that mean? That means he confessed it. When I messed up, I would confess. As a matter of fact, as he had a habit of doing, if we go all the way back to Job chapter 1, when he thought, hey, what if my kids did something wrong? I want to even confess their sin. I'm not going to blab about it. I'm going to pray about it. That they might turn back to God because that's what I need to do when I sin. And like I said, that passage can say, as Adam did. And if we think back to the garden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, when uh, Adam and Eve ate, what did they do? They go hide in the bushes. We're naked. We're going to go hide. But God created you. Don't you kind of think he knows what you look like? And why did they hide? To conceal their sin. We hid from you because we knew we were naked. And we heard you coming. 
And isn't that what we do? When you and I sin, we keep it quiet, don't we? We don't let somebody else know that we've done something wrong. Oh, it's small stuff. We don't mind, right? Yeah, I let a word slip. I shouldn't have let it slip. That's not the big deal, right? We could talk about that. But don't talk about my great sins. And here's the problem with that. By concealing that sin, you know what happens? We destroy our souls in the process. God wants that sin to stay hidden. You know, we're supposed to confess our sins that we might become healed. The healing comes through confession. Confession is God's avenue by putting it in his care and not keeping it in ours. Jesus already died for it. By confessing that it's sin, we admit, number one, that it's sin. That it should not be something that is done. That's something that Job consistently says about all of these other areas in this passage. Lust, adultery, it's sin. I didn't do it. Because of my fear of God, I made sure I did what I was supposed to do. And not doing those things would have been sin. If I trusted in something else other than God, be it money, wealth, other gods that are out there, other philosophies, this would be a grievous sin. It is important to define sin. It is important that when you and I sin, we call it that and not blow it off as if it's some small thing. Job didn't. That confession of sin is so important. And in that confession of sin, after he has said that, he said, look, if the Almighty has a charge against me, if after I've presented all of this, he still has a charge, I will wear it like a crown so that everybody can see this is what God charged me with. Would you do that? Because if I read the word of God, we're all sinners. Would you be that specific? Talking to somebody else about what you struggle with? Asking for forgiveness when you stumble along the way? Or does confession never happen? The altar stays empty. The sin of pride keeps growing. And that confession for sin is always for somebody else who needs it more than you. It's the difference between a righteous man and a non-righteous man. And we live in a culture right now that doesn't want many righteous men. Job has stood his ground. And he stands before God and he says, I'm ready. Judge me. Because you're the God of all. And if you have something against me, I'm going to take it. And we're going to hear that next couple of weeks. But in the end, he's vindicated before God because he spoke what is right. Despite all the false charges... That were laid at his feet by his friends. If you live. As Jesus wants us to live. As righteous men and women in Christ. The world is not going to understand. They're not going to understand our confession of sin to one another. They're absolutely not going to understand that. 
And it's a, it's a tough thing to do because on the one end, we don't want to blow off the sin as if that's no big deal. And on the other end, we don't want to treat it that it's so big that Jesus didn't die for it and we can't be reconciled. But a righteous man walks that path. It's harder because it's a whole lot easier just to do Christianity for everybody else to see. And Christianity is always for somebody else and not me. Do you have what it takes to be the righteous man that God wants you to be by trusting fully in Christ, by confessing our sins, by repenting and turning away, by not listening to any other voice larger than his? Because there isn't any. And by committing to do the things that God wants you to do, no matter what our culture says. That's what it means to be a righteous man of God. This is Job's defense. I think it's a pretty good one. I think it's a good definition of what a righteous man ought to be. One that I can honestly say, I'm not as good as Job. By the grace of God, I'm here. I get to tell you about Jesus, not because I'm more righteous than you, but because I know what he's done for me and wants to do for you too. And only through him can you become that righteous man. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for today. I pray in the name of Jesus that you help us to be the righteous men, the righteous women of God that you've called us to be. There are so many voices that don't want us to be this type of person. They want us to have vengeance on our enemies. They want us to look lustfully at other people. They don't want us to do the good things that we ought to do, but rather the things that this culture has deemed good, which you have not deemed good. They tell us to not admit our wrongdoing no matter what. God, this is not how we came to know Christ. Help us to follow you humbly, sharing Jesus with the world around us, no matter what they might say about us, and doing what you tell us is good and forsaking all others and all else, Lord, because of what Jesus has done for us. And let us hold out that hope that he gives us that only shines through when we act that way. In Jesus' name, amen.